Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiologist, and I'm a nutritionist, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. Hey, it's Dr. Mike T. Nelson. I'm the owner of Extreme Human Performance, creator of the Flex Diet Certification, just coming back out in January again. Cool. And faculty member for the Kerrig Institute, so I'll be back down there again in January. Right on. Yeah. You know, just um, gym talk, I have been almost unable to lift these last several weeks. I'm, you know, trying to launch a a new master's degree at my university and, you know, and I've got the usual research and that kind of stuff. And a lot of people don't realize how time consuming that latter thing can be. You know, it's like, this doesn't just happen. Um, But I I actually got into the gym and I did one set of shrugs, dumbbell shrugs, and my traps are wrecked. I'm embarrassed. Oh yeah. Embarrassed. I've done it in a while. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty much it. I mean, I've been squeezing in like We'll we'll call it one and a half times a week if I'm being generous to myself, and um, yeah, I'm just. It, but it felt good, you know. It felt really good just to go in the gym and do some of my favorite stuff. Not like big, heavy, competitive type lifts, but just I love seated cable rows and stuff like that. And I just got to sort of go after my back a little bit, you know. And it feels good to have a sore uh, upper back, so. Yeah, I think that's <clears throat> one of the things I've been doing is just having an upper body, what I call dude bra day. I go in and do some dumbbell bench, some dumbbell rows. Usually I use you know fat grips or something on there for grip stuff. And then, yeah, I'll actually go and play around with some of the machines at the gym. It's like the only time I actually go to a gym once during the week. The rest I just lift here. So it's yeah. it's kind of fun. Yeah. Yeah, last week I managed – I just did like – um sets of five just up to 275 in the squat and my legs got so sore i could barely walk and i'm like i'm so detrained you know but at the same time it's weirdly enjoyable you know because i just feel the the frustrating thing has been every time you go in the gym if you're only going in once a week and then with some some spot work every time is square one like you just keep stepping back to square one and you can't get that momentum and I know a lot of people are like, oh, Lonnie, you know, make time. You get up earlier. Well, I get up at 420. Uh, there's no <laughs> – there's no – there isn't any. I can't even make any. I So – but that's done, you know, and yeah. over break. It's funny. When I come back from break, winter break, summer break, a lot of people are like, oh, you look a little bit bigger. Have you been lifting? I'm like, I finally got to lift, period, you know. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. just, and that's the tricky thing because you'll have a massive. If you look at like acute to chronic load, you'll have a pretty big load spike, which is you know potentially a risk for injury. You know, so yeah. it's it's the the catch twenty two because it's like, well, now you have you know actually time to lift, being off a little bit, but you can't go too you know batshit crazy because then you potentially run the risk of injury exactly. because you're more detrained from not having as much frequency beforehand and. Yep. That's one of the things I try to <clears throat> tell clients is that if you're gone for a week on vacation and you do nothing, just tell me you did nothing because your week back is going to be pretty light. 
And their instinct is, oh, I want to come back right at five sets. I'm like, no, that's a horrible idea. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, there's an age factor you sure. know, that I can't deny, too, in mileage, like training age. I was thinking yep. the other day, the training age, if I, I started lifting when I was 13. So, oh. you know, so I have, what, like 37 years of training age? Or like My yeah. training age is, is greater than most people I – I lived with, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like their biological age. Uh, but yeah, I, I hear you because I'm just like I'm going to do a couple of work up to 275, and what is that like? Maybe three sets of five, and then just walk away. And sure enough, I was I was sore. So, yeah. yeah, I find that with myself with travel, even just squatting. Like I, I'm back up to doing a little bit more, but it's not heavy at all. And even just doing that, it's like, oh, oh my gosh, my you know hamstrings, my adductors, my glutes. And then a couple of weeks ago, <laughs> uh, John Berardi was posting on his page on Facebook about uh, some stuff he was doing with the trap bar as more of a challenge type workout. Mm-hmm. So 225 on a trap bar for 100 reps. And then what was the time it takes you? Okay. And I posted, I'm like, wow, that sounds like just an absolutely hideous idea. <laughs> <laughs> And of course, he's like, "Well, what was your time on it?" I'm like, "Oh, you bastard!" <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I ended up doing that a couple of weeks ago, and oh, yeah, I was sore for four days after that, and my glutes got sore the next day, and were sore for two days, and then my hamstrings got really sore like three and four days out. It was like a different time scale, which is crazy. So, yeah, that's odd. Yeah, the whole delayed onset thing. Yeah, and it was funny that it was different in different muscles right, too exactly. from the same workout. Right. Yeah. Totally. So the fun stuff we do to ourselves. No doubt. And, you know, and, and it sort of echoes what we're talking about with volume. You know, Fortress used to say volume kills. Phil, Phil looks at things like a total dose. Like, you know, just get in your, I don't know, 40 reps or whatever. I don't care how many sets it takes. Just get in your this many reps with this relative intensity. And it, that's really a smart way to go about it because I really learned yeah. over the years. It's actually better to do more sets of less reps um, just get your total dose in, you know, and it, but yeah, you really got to be cognizant of that when you're coming back from when you know you're detrained, you know. So yeah, that was I was sitting down with Cal Dietz a couple of years ago, and I'm in theory helping him write another book, but he's up at the whiteboard. And it was just us sitting in the room, and he spends 40 minutes outlining all this stuff, and I'm I'm sitting there going, oh my god, how am I going to explain this to anybody else, you know? And at the end, I kind of looked at him, and I'm like. So what you're really saying with all that stuff is that you should keep the quality as high as possible and then work on quantity. And he kind of pauses for a while. And he looks at me and he's like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm that's like, it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, everybody, we, used to have, we have two bits of mail uh, and I think three or four nuggets of uh, science news, all from women this week, which is Probably not surprising, you know, as much as Phil's been talking about how his clientele is mostly women these days. Yeah, um, those are mine, actually, like 85%. Wow, yeah. It was just surprising to me when I looked at it. I'm like, oh, yeah, and it's been that way for like five years. Yeah, <laughs> and it, it's nice. I actually don't go looking that often for uh, research articles to share because people send them, you know. We have some people like Karen who sends good stuff. You know, and it just, I don't even have to look then. <laughs> but anyway, this is not a comprehensive list of what people have set in. Uh, but let's let's do the, the mails first here. 
And I apologize to everybody. I still uh, have my dental thing going on until I can get my my new tooth. I can't wait to bite into an apple, man. Just I want to bite into an <laughs> apple. I want to bite into a corn cob. I feel like the old um, Christmas you know tune. All I want for Christmas is my two front teeth. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, Don't break that new tooth. They're going to be pissed. Oh man, <laughs> like thirty eight hundred dollar tooth. Oof. You know, like yeah. No, no fight clubs for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So um, this is from Lindsay. She says, good evening or morning. I see you guys are recording episode 500. Um, of course, this is before last Saturday. I have to say congratulations and thank you. Iron Radio literally changed my life. Funny story. Iron Radio was how a now friend of mine heard about Phil Stevens. Uh, and they thought so much of you guys and your expertise. They invited Philip to Canada to do a lifting seminar. Uh, this was five years ago. Uh, I was online dating at the time and decided a seminar was a safe, good public place to arrange to meet a guy that I'd never met before. Uh, it never worked out with that guy, but we stay in touch. And I always say I found love through online dating. It just happened to be that I fell in love with the iron. Phil picked on me all weekend <laughs> and eventually convinced me to train online with him since I was from a small town, um, you know, basically nowhere in the middle of Canada. Uh, through a long series of events, I started competing for Strength Guild and eventually moved from Canada to Kansas. So, wow. Uh, I married a man from down here, so it looks like we're sticking around for a bit. Um, this past weekend, I competed at the USA Weightlifting American Open Finals. Uh, I've trained under Phil uh, ever since that fateful weekend seminar, and I listen to you guys every week. Uh, you've taken me from ground zero to a national-level finalist. Uh, and it all started because you have a reputation for consistently putting out solid information. Um, I work as a registered nurse, so I honestly love the geek-out sessions. Well, you're going to like today, <laughs> Lindsay, because <laughs> it's just me and Mike. Um, you're running the ship. <laughs> yep. Um, Thanks for all you have done and you continue to do. For the love of coffee, keep up the good work. Thanks again, guys. Lindsay. Um, oh, I'm, I'm sure I met her when I was down there. Yeah. Built gym. So that's awesome. Yeah, really cool. She's, uh, it's appreciative. You know, when I, I see people, like, let's, lots of people lift. And I love, I love the spectrum of egghead through meathead. But the people who have some of the, you know, the similar course background that you or I might have, Mike, like, sure. like her, it's just, you know, it's you're all you start on the same page, and that sometimes yeah. makes it even easier. Uh, this next one is from Kara, uh, dear Iron Radio. I'm hoping you can help me answer a question regarding the sumo deadlift and foot position. Uh, when I started powerlifting, my foot position in the sumo deadlift was pointed very outward, almost parallel with the barbell. However, as I continued lifting. I noticed that my positioning has changed over the years. Uh, I prefer to deadlift with my feet more inward now. Why would that be? Are different muscles activated depending on the angle of the feet? No one really talks about foot position in depth, and I suggest uh, doing what feels comfortable, but I'm looking for more of a scientific answer if possible. Cheers from Eastern Canada. Oh, another person from Kanukistan here. Um, <laughs> Kara, so um, you're up, Mike. So maybe uh, muscles getting activated. I haven't looked at any like EMG studies or anything, but this sounds right up your alley as well. 
Yeah, I mean, my guess as to why it changed over time is maybe just with training, you're getting other muscles to work a little bit better. Um, I usually find that if someone is extremely externally rotated in a sumo, especially as their stance gets wider, yep. oh, that's just really hard on the hip structure in general. Mm-hmm. I just find a lot of people get hip pain with that. Um, even if you look at very high-level power lifters, you'll see every couple of years, not so much anymore, but I would say probably back maybe five, eight years ago, quite a few guys, a couple of guys I knew locally, would start pulling sumo uh, big dudes that start pulling a lot of weight, and they were, you know, more on the taller side, longer femurs. So from a biomechanics standpoint, yeah, getting wider, <clears throat> more external rotation is going to keep that torso a little bit more upright. But the couple guys I know, man, they just kind of really wrecked their their hips doing that, just oh, because yeah. of a lot of the force that goes into it. Mm-hmm. I think if you're a little bit smaller and probably not going to be as as big of a deal with that. So that might be my guess as to why it's changed or. You know, you're just getting other muscles a little bit stronger, so that's going to change some of your form on different things, too. Um, in terms of differences, I did pull up uh, one study here, and I'm definitely not an expert on EMG activation and that type of thing. But if you just look at the physics of it, in general, sumo is going to allow your torso to be a little bit more vertical. Mm-hmm. So you're going to have a little bit more lower leg drive. You're not going to have as much of the extensors in the back and that type of thing compared to conventional. So that's probably going to be the the bigger difference with that. But I don't know, a lot of it depends on, you know, femur length and, you know, how far out are you in a sumo? Or are you doing more of a kind of like a Ned Cone modified, you know, type sumo, which is kind of in between. So it's probably going to depend on a lot of factors. And mm-hmm. if I get like super in-depth questions like that, I usually harass Dr. Brett Contreras on it. <laughs> okay, yeah. Yeah, I guess that would make sense to me, like a little bit less of the the posterior, like like you were saying, some of the extensors and stuff, because you're 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 flat, you know, kind of against the bar with that kind of external rotation and stuff. I don't, I'm, I'm imagining there'd be differences in, like you know, your adductors and quad activation and stuff like that. But it's hard to really, like you said, EMG stuff is actually very challenging. Yeah, I, I used to try spell. to, I used to try to do that with uh, caffeine. And more than once we've looked, and we weren't able to see any differences in EMG with, our, um, you know, like post-caffeine versus post-decaf uh, and that kind of stuff. And um, it, it was a frustrating experience for me because electrophysiology, those guys, I, I just think there's a lot of, um, I don't want to say it's the art of it, but at least the, the familiarity, you know, and the experience with it probably matters a lot. You can't just um, figure that out. And... Um, there's some interesting papers about why, like, literally coaching cues can change EMG activity. Like, yes. I, I saw some stuff in the bench press where they were – this is a couple of years ago, and I don't have the author's name in front of me. But uh, essentially they were saying that when you coach someone, look, more triceps drive, more triceps. Sure enough, you know, you can actually see, you know, listeners, that, that line, you know, sort of that squiggle. Like, look at the increased amplitude, you know. Uh, of what's happening in the triceps just because they're being told think about your triceps more you know and you'll see the pec activity not necessarily change because they're trying more of their triceps so there's even like a subjective element to this too so and uh, one study on it too that's uh, an electromyographical analysis of sumo and conventional style deadlifts from escamilla uh, this is in med science 4 2002 
Uh, nice part about this is that they did do EMG, but they did do a six camera study also. So they're looking at more biomechanics, which I think is a good idea. Mm-hmm. Um, in short, again, if you just summarize the results, they said overall EMG activity from the vastus medialis, vastus lateralis, tibialis anterior were significantly greater in the sumo deadlift. And that kind of makes sense, right? You're using oh, a little bit more of a quad yeah. drive with that. I, mm-hmm. I'd go with that. Uh, whereas overall EMG activity from the medial gastroc was significantly greater in the conventional deadlift. So, Okay. Yeah, interesting. There you go. Now, why she would have – why she's less externally rotated now over time, um, it's hard to say. Like you said, maybe, yeah. that, maybe that was harder on her hips and she just found it more comfortable. Um, yeah, I don't know. Follow up with us, Kara. You know what you yeah. what you think about why you know why you think uh, you've done that, right? Because I think um, your perceptions of this matter as well. So anyway, yeah. And usually, I find that sometimes coaches put people in what is the best position via physics, and that makes sense to make the lift the most efficient. But then you're always kind of, I'd say, counterbalancing that with what uh, anatomically can they do. Right, so from a physics standpoint, yeah, for sumo, get your torso as straight up and down as possible. That makes sense. But, man, the positions you may have to put your body in to do that, your joints and everything else just may hate you for doing it. Yeah. Yeah, we addressed, like, anatomical differences and sort of body shape and yeah. whatnot uh, not that long ago. And I think that's obviously something that, um, that she might want to look into as well. You know, like, maybe you're built for one of these, like, oh, like like you were saying with Eddie Cullen, maybe a little bit more hybrid um, movement choice or something like yeah. that, just because it fits your your you know your bone lengths and whatnot better. So, uh, okay, one more thing uh, before we go to break. And again, you could everyone you could tell from this the title of this episode. It's just sort of a brief. Let's catch up on some of the the mail and news. Um, I just wanted to uh, thank. Uh, the following people just this past week uh, or two, Shannon, David, and John, thanks for participating, right, w- helping with the fall funds drive. Um, those funds go to uh, important places. And if anybody ever wants to ask, send us an email, and I- I'll show you where this stuff goes. It's, it, this is not done for uh, you know any kind of profit uh, on our behalf. Um, also... In Iron Radio News, the Coffee Project volunteers, if you have signed an NDA, I know our Iron Radio intern, uh, Kayla, she basically said if we have the the liability forms and the NDA forms back uh, by the 20th, so literally like two days ago, uh, we can start shipping these out. So in the, over the next three weeks, we'll start shipping these out. It's just essentially a... It's a little self-education and how to taste test coffee, going a bit beyond the cupping method, which is a little bit more of a, a, a subjective judgment, if you will, like on you know how good, you know how you rate it, maybe. And I'm no cupping expert either, um, but it'll be it should be interesting and entertaining for you to kind of play around with what's in the packet. Um, and then you know, and then we look forward to getting your feedback. You'll essentially have to. Uh, if not mail back the data sheet, uh, I think we could probably work in such a way that you could take a picture with your phone and email it uh, straight to Kayla. And then we can analyze what we get back and, and see what's happening with these different brew methods. But 
Should be fun. Uh, next three weeks, it's been a long time coming. Uh, originally, I wanted to do this in the fall, and of course, we're in the middle of winter now. Um, but, you know, such is the nature of research. You know, I was just fussing about how much goes into research. It doesn't just happen. And this is more of just a taste test sort of focus group project, if you will. But nonetheless, um, it'll be fun. Like, it's one of those things, by participating in it, I think you'll be left better off with, with what you understand about coffee. So, All right, we're going to go to break. When we come back, we have uh, several bits of news here, and um, we'll see you in a minute. I can't stop feeling Some of us don't understand How lucky we are To be living in Hi listeners, this is Rob Fortress Fortney. I'm here to remind you that as the holiday season approaches and your thoughts turn to giving, we like you to keep Iron Rating in your thoughts. Over the past several years, there have been hundreds of listener comments hoping that Iron Radio stays on the air for years to come. Iron Radio is here for you. But as with any public radio-type format, the show is listener-supported. That's where you come in. For just $4 a month, you become a supporting member, keeping your weekly dose of education, experts, and gym talk flowing. Just go to www.ironradio.org and click on the $4 monthly subscribe button near the bottom of the page. Or... Click the donate button at the right of the page for a one-time donation. You are the Iron Brotherhood and Sisterhood. Of course, not everyone can afford to be a supporting member or a significant one-time donor. But for those of you willing to pitch in $4 per month or $50 just once, we're about to sweeten the deal. Become a supporting member or major donor between now and January, and a limited number of you will receive a gift worth over $20. And we will never forget our existing supporters. Simply email me via ironradio.org, and I'll send you a free seminar from Dr. Lowry on how to significantly and realistically boost your testosterone levels. Help your iron brothers and sisters who cannot pitch in but deserve better internet programming in our sports. And happy holidays. Hey listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh, you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what. Uh, There is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote-unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, There's an enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that, and uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single-digit royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. 
but over the years there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. All right, folks, we're back. Merry Christmas. Uh, happy holidays, all that jazz. Just a relaxed episode of catching up on mail and and some news. Um, let's start with some of the news. Strength and Muscle Sport News. This first one is from the Institute of Food Technologists newsletter, which is just gold. I really suggest people get this if they can, the IFT newsletter. This is spanking new stuff from this month. Salivary proteins may influence food choices. So, of course, a lot of our listeners realize that saliva, not only does it have enzymes in it that start the digestion process, you know, like carbon, fat digestion starts in the mouth and that sort of thing. Um, Now, gratefully, protein digestion does not start in the mouth or you digest your cheeks, but... But it also, obviously, it's like an aqueous medium that, that helps bathe your taste buds so you can taste things. These chemical reactions can take place and whatnot. So this says scientists recently discovered that proteins in saliva go beyond just helping us taste food to actually influencing how that food tastes, hmm. which in turn could influence what people willingly choose to eat. So it says um, some of these salivary proteins are thought to impart astringent taste sensations uh, that people might experience when eating foods such as red wine or certain types of chocolate. So it says research presented uh, during the American Chemical Society meeting this year found that, let's see, quote, we found that feeding people chocolate milk, which contained polyphenols, which if you're not familiar, everybody, I mean, those are generally considered healthy, but they're sort of, they're not the best tasting things. Um, Change the makeup of the saliva, says Cordelia A. Running, assistant professor of nutrition science and food science at Purdue. Some of the changes could mean that these polyphenols might taste less nasty in the long run. This could explain why some people acquire tastes for certain foods. This makes me think of coffee. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, like a lot of people, they don't go right for the black coffee and... um, Everyone, Mike and I were just talking over over the little uh, break there, but um, like I don't want a bunch of flavored coffee and stuff in the morning. I want black coffee. I want to taste coffee, you know, um, and I don't want it masked with a bunch of artificial flavors and whatnot. But anyway, this suggests why people get acquired taste, and I think red wine and coffee are both good examples of this. Um, it says this also has a healthy healthy message. Uh, for people that healthy food doesn't have to taste bad, at least not forever. So, uh, and they go on to talk about like people who try to switch to more plant-based diets. And I can't say I'm all about a, a 
completely plant diet, but yeah, more fruits and veg. If you don't like them now, they're suggesting that over time, essentially, almost like anything else in our fields, right, you can get adaptations, and in this case, adaptations in the protein profile in your spit, uh, and you're actually going to acquire a taste for some of those things. And I don't know if listeners, if you've experienced that or not, like I can tell you sometimes six months of dieting for a bodybuilding show, and maybe it's because you're depleted, but yeah, the broccoli and chicken breast, you come to accept them pretty well. I mean, you kind of get an acquired <laughs> taste. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. But Yeah. And that's one thing I do with clients too over time is can I – can I shift them to actually enjoy foods that are more on the bitter, tannic kind of end of the spectrum? Yeah. And after you've you know, eaten most of those foods on that end, I tend to forget, like, what was I having the other day? It was some manufactured food, and I can't remember what it was, but it was ungodly sweet. I'm like, holy crap. You forget sometimes how sweet things are and just, I guess that they're selling a ton of it, so you know the public must like that type of, of flavoring. But it's easy to forget that that can be changed over time too. And and if you're driving people towards the more bitter things, they tend to have a lot less calories and everything else associated with them too. And they're still getting the enjoyment out of it. So a simple thing I'll do if they enjoy milk chocolate, I'm like, okay, can you get like 66 percent? You know, can I? scale them all the way up to you know around at least 80 or 90 percent so yeah. that obviously your calories are going to go down polyphenols might go up yeah but i think it's just a more sustainable habit over your lifetime and you don't feel deprived then either you kind of grow to like those things that's right yeah i just think it's interesting they say proteins released by salivary glands interact yeah. with your own taste receptors in your mouth you know and change the flavor of the food you're eating to you because everybody knows you're right it's there's a lot that goes into this. I mean, your genetic, like the profile of your taste receptors, the microbiome in your mouth. You know, there's so many things. But, yeah, th to think that your taste preferences are trainable. Good point about the sweetness, by the way. Because when I used to do those weight management clinics, and I've talked about this yeah. in the past. But, right, I'm like, how many people sweeten their coffee and how much? And, you know, most hands go up. And then I'm like, let's try half a packet of Splenda. You know, that's it. And then, or, you know, just titrate down from two packs to one pack to half a pack. And that's sort of my calling card. Like, I prefer coffee that's just barely sweetened, you know. Mm -hmm. So I usually leave a, a partial pack of Splenda around or Stevia or what have you. Um, and my mom always laughs. Oh, Lonnie's been here, you know. So, <laughs> but that's because that's what I'm doing. I, I want to train my taste buds away from, you know, demanding sickly sweet foods. So... So based on that study, then, can we come up with a mouth spray to change the protein content to drive people towards more bitter flavors with the same amount of enjoyment? It sounds like it. I mean, they just fed people chocolate milk. Right. Uh, there was even enough polyphenols in that. And, yeah, from you and me, Mike, from our standards, that's not going to be like one of the yeah. polyphenol <laughs> foods I'm going to jump to first. With all the different kinds of, yeah phytochemicals and you know berries and all the things that you could choose and you know different interesting vegetables i don't think i would go right for the chocolate milk but i think what they're trying to do is start from kind of to your point is where americans are <laughs> yeah and yeah and train their their salivary glands to secrete different proteins so um, someone listening does come up with the mouse spray remember you heard it here first and we will take a percentage that's right <laughs> that's right 
<laughs> Mike T. Nelson patent. That's right. Uh, I'm actually waiting to hear back from the silly patent office on a trademark still. It's been forever. Stupid things are expensive, too. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep. Okay. Uh, next up. This is sort of up your alley because of your background in the medical device industry. Ah. Implantable device aids weight loss. New battery-free. Easily implantable weight loss devices could offer promising new weapon for battling the bulge. This is from um, UW Medicine. Mm. So um, those guys are really on the ball up there. Yeah. Um, It says, let's see. These devices so far have helped rats shed almost 40% of their body weight. Wow. Wow. Um, Results of the study were published December 17th in the journal Nature Communications. Let's see. Um, the new device is different because it's it's small and there's no battery, essentially, because that was a barrier to these things in the past that zap your vagus nerve and basically fool right. your brain that you're full. Um, measuring less than one centimeter across, uh, and, and it's implantable with a minimally invasive procedure, generates gentle electrical pulses from the stomach's natural churning motions that deliver uh, a signal to the vagus nerve which then makes oh. you feel full. Uh, unlike gastric bypass, of course, which is permanently altering the capacity of the stomach, the effects of the new devices are reversible. Now, you know, this could be pro or con. A lot of people would say, oh, I'd like to lose the weight and then have the device removed, but then the weight's going to come back on, essentially. Yeah. Right? It says when Wang, this is uh, the researcher, and colleagues uh, removed the devices after 12 weeks the, de- the study's rats resumed their normal eating patterns, and the weight bounced right back. So, um, what else? Wang's device has several advantages over existing units that stimulate the vagus nerve for weight loss. The existing unit, called the Maestro, which is approved by the FDA in 2015, administers high-frequency zaps to the vagus nerve to shut down all communication between the brain and the stomach, uh, and requires complicated control unit, bulky batteries, they have to be re- recharged, stuff like that. This device does not require battery charging. Wang's device contains no batteries. It relies instead on the undulations of the stomach walls to power internal generators. Clever. Hmm. Um, and again, and again, it's only going to stimulate the vagus when your stomach is naturally moving anyway. So I think it's sort of a, you know, let's not fool with all the, the battery and recharging crap. It's just, uh, and it's more mild in a sense. Uh, he and his collaborators patented the weight loss device through the Wisconsin Alumni Research Foundation. So, wow, that's that's super interesting. Like as people know, I spent about twelve years working in the medical device industry in uh, pacemakers and defibrillators. And one of the projects I was almost on, although I, they had a change of course, was I worked in Leeds Design for three years. So little wires that run into the heart. And uh, one of the guys who worked there early on, he had filed one of the earliest patents on pacing the vagal nerve back in the 70s. Um, But they weren't really able to do it for a long time in humans because the lead, the interface, the wire that goes around the vessel, they just didn't have the technology up until the last uh, probably a few years. I mean, they've been working on it for a long time. Mm -hmm. And so now, like you said, there's devices that are approved for that. And one of the questions I've always wondered is... Do you need to change like the output or the frequency of it over time? Like, does your body just get used to that signal and become kind of resistant to it over time? Right. So people have the right. 
stomach stapled, right? Initially, they lose a lot of weight, but then if they're not compliant, they tend to kind of stretch their stomach back out again. It just seems like we tend to, kind of humans are so plastic, we tend to override a lot of those uh, stimulations. But that's not always the case either. So people who've had a pacemaker put in, they'll check all the time to see how much energy it takes to cause the heart to contract. And, you know, most people, they don't need that much more energy as they have the device implanted. So there doesn't seem to be a a buildup of tolerance to that. So, yeah, I don't know. I guess that's the first thing I would wonder about. And maybe people lose weight if this is something they could get implanted to help them keep the weight off, since that's the issue for vast majority of people. 90 plus percent will regain weight afterwards. So might be useful in that case. Yeah, my son and I were just having a conversation about homeostasis. And, you know, you and I agree very much. Like in exercise fizz, I think one of the things it teaches you is that to use your word plastic, you know, the plasticity, muscle plasticity, but it's huge. But so many things, right? I mean, that whole idea of um, getting some type of adaptation, physical therapists rely on it, strength mm-hmm. coaches rely on it, and it, this stuff happens nutritionally, right? You know, you have a, like, if you look at a lot of that uh, data about digestive enzymes and things like that from like uh, Jukendrup and those guys, um, what you eat changes digestive enzyme profile, different tissue, you know, metabolic enzymes. Um, people are so adaptable, but you're, to your point, in this case, you could be adapting in a way that you're desensitizing. Obviously, that's a problem right. with, with drugs, too. Um, yeah, but this the short answer right now is that this is not in people yet, you know. Right. So that's an interesting point, though, right, Mike? Like, if people, if this is such a gentle stimulus... Maybe it doesn't cross a threshold, and it, and it continues to deliver a, a sensation of fullness, or maybe, yeah, in, internal corrective mechanisms just mess up the effect after six months or something. You know. Yeah, and then I wonder on the behavior side, do you know? It's not like we can interview the rats and go, "Hey, do you feel more satisfied, or what do you feel?" Obviously, they're eating less food. But in humans, you wonder, well, what is some of the reasons that people tend to, you know, overeat? You know, will they push themselves more sympathetic, even though they have this more parasympathetic vagal nerve stim going on just because of their associated habits with food and other things to kind of cancel out the effect? Or does it change in the other direction where they just don't feel like they need to do that anymore? So it is very successful and uh, I have no idea which <laughs> which right. way it goes. <laughs> yeah, human psychology is going to throw a monkey wrench in this stuff. Yeah. Right? I mean, I can imagine because a, a lot of people, they may feel full, but if they're emotional eaters, maybe they're right. this won't do as much for people. You know, if a rat's not hungry, it stops eating and it loses 40% of its weight, you know. But in a people, uh, in a person, maybe not so much. So yeah. Still fascinating, though. It is. I mean, I, I think the trend that we're going to keep seeing over the years, and we've already seen it over the, the tenure of this podcast, is more and more, like, uh, technology merging with people. You know, Phil's titanium hip and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, you know, and, uh, yeah. And some of it's going to become more and more electronic, I'm sure. Like, the neural interface stuff, I think, is where a lot of this is heading. It's not just orthopedic, but it's... Um, it's sort of this wetware interface with your nervous system, which is a little scary, a little sci-fi, but it's already happening, you know. So yeah, and even with the genetic engineering, and I know when I when I left the med tech company, they were spending heavily on uh, sensors because the thought being that 
if you have genetic engineering that can quote unquote cure someone of different cardiac issues, but you know, how long do they have sort of the leftover processes from the disease? How long does that take to remodel in the case of like congestive heart failure, things of that nature? Yeah. That maybe putting in a sensor because you can get super compliance for it because it's implanted. They've got ways of communicating next to your bed stand at nights. So you're getting data 24 7 to your yeah. electrophysiologist. Yeah. And they've shown some interesting data now where they can predict. Uh, where someone's going to have a heart failure episode, so they can, you know, maybe change some of their therapy and prevent uh, possible hospitalization, which is a major uh, cost and obviously not very good for the patient either. Um, so different sensors, I think, will become even more and more prevalent, which hopefully will allow us to kind of figure out exactly what's going on with that amount of data. Yeah, sometimes it makes me wonder how we can Dr. Frankenstein this into like lifting performance and that kind of stuff, right? Because AI yeah. is a part, your phone is so powerful now, you know, that the, the kind of things that you might not pick up on, like you're talking about predicting a, a cardiac event from like a CHF, but yeah. what else might we predict, you know, um, because it's collecting data from like 18 different variables and plugging and chugging into an algorithm and actually sort of the AI nature of it all might be able to say, hey, it's time to take a, um, a deload week, you know, something like that. Uh, sort of like what you do with the HRV and all that kind of yeah. stuff. But like like you were saying, like implant it and in real time. Of course, the privacy issues are fascinating because that there's been a couple episodes of Sci-Fry, a Science Friday podcast I listened to, and there like it, one was called The Quantified Self. And what happens mm -hmm. when you're an insurance company? You know, and I'm a big believer insurance companies act like criminals half the time. Yeah. <laughs> and so I don't want them knowing everything about me necessarily, you know, but yeah, at the same time, um, this idea of AI guided stuff from implanted sensors, uh, there could be some major, you know, jumps ahead, I think, if we, if we do this carefully. Yeah, and we're, we're getting closer. I mean, look at, uh, I just got a new Garmin watch, which does a lot of crazy stuff. Um, I'm a big fan of the Aura Ring, which I've had for quite a while, uh, Herpri and those guys there. And, you know, the Aura Ring is about, you know, 70% accurate for sleep in terms of differentiating deep and possibly REM, which for consumer-grade stuff is extremely high because trying to differentiate sleep stages is not very easy. But they're able to do it with, you know, temp sensors, looking at the pulse pattern through the artery and the, the ring through the hand. So it's, you know, getting better. And the nice part about that is it's a ring that you wear all the time, just like a watch. So compliance is generally pretty high. And if it's pulling the data all the time, you just have to load it to your phone. You know, there's been, you know, different ways of proposing sensors and clothing for a long time now that just, in my opinion, haven't really panned out. But well, we're getting closer and closer to it each year. Yeah. I've said it before, but once we get to the point where a watch or a ring or some kind of wearable thing can minimally invasively, I mean, I don't care if it, if it, if it's drawing some interstitial fluid or something, but if you could start doing continuous blood glucose monitoring or, um, which we've been talking about a little bit actually lately, or hormones or that kind of stuff, that's going to be fascinating to me. Now these wearable devices are really going to skirt, start getting my attention. I, like I said, I don't know what kind of barriers we have to break through with some of that. I'm, I'm sure they're significant, but I really want almost, I, I mean, imagine it's like continuous blood work. Like that would be amazing stuff. So. Yeah, and uh, I've had the Libre Freestyle a couple of times, which is a continuous glucose monitor, and 
Um, yeah, there's some maybe possible accuracy issues at time because, again, it's not designed for healthy people. It was designed more for diabetics. Yeah, yeah. Um, but still, having that just a little disc you wear on the back of your tricep for you know 10 to 14 days and just to see the amount of data that it's just collecting all the time. You know, it's grabbing data every minute and then uh, averaging them out to five-minute intervals, and you can get the raw uh, data dump from it. It's, it's super fascinating to see. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I in fact, I just got um, – I just arranged for two scripts so I can get a couple of those units. Oh, nice. So, cool. Yeah, so it's going to be fun to, to look at those things um, both acutely. Like if somebody's wearing it, you can have them come in every other day and drink coffee and just look at that yeah. two-hour two window. But then yep. I also get all the data in between. You know, it's just yeah. really cool. So we'll yeah, see. And what's, what's blown me away on that is in some people you'll see – the exact same amount of carbohydrates, but you'll see completely different responses and they don't match up to glycemic index or glycemic load. Obviously, glycemic load is going to change the amount. Sure, yeah. Um, and I think, you know, that paper that was published in Cell a couple of years ago that did this massive study looking at that and gut biota and everything else. And we're, we're at the point now where most people, I think, would agree that the same amount of carbohydrates could have different physiologic effects. But we're pretty far away from figuring out, you know, what direction to go with that. Yeah. Yep. Cool stuff. Yeah. Uh, one last one on this Christmas episode here. This is from uh, Karen. So I mentioned her earlier. Physical activity in the evening does not cause sleep problems. And I'm sorry, Karen. I know you gave me this a, uh, a little bit ago when it was probably literally like hot off the press. This is still from this month. Um says, contrary to popular belief, there is no reason to avoid exercising in the evening, an analysis of the scientific literature has revealed. Um, I, I went and pulled the actual study. It's uh, Stutz, S-T-U-T-Z, uh, and colleagues, uh, Sports Med, uh, number 29. Uh, so it actually, the study was done back in October. So, you know, we're talking about maybe eight weeks ago or something. But uh, the study's name was Effects of evening exercise on sleep in healthy participants, a systematic review and meta-analysis. So the general idea is, at least the way that um, this particular article shares it, uh, this is, by the way, the the science journalist is Fabio uh, Bergamin, but Fabio says it's widely held belief that sleep quality can be improved by avoiding exercise in the evening. Uh, however, researchers at the Institute of Human Movement Sciences and Sport at ETH Zurich have demonstrated this is not generally true. They looked at 23 studies, and they concluded that doing exercise in the four hours before going to bed does not have a negative effect on sleep. It says, if anything, it has a mild positive effect, says Christina Spengler, head of exercise physiology there. Um now, an exception to the rule, and I think this is pertinent to our yeah. listeners, right? Yeah. Um, vigorous training within one hour before bed is an exception. According to the analysis, it's the only type of evening exercise that may have a negative effect. Um, however, this is based on just one study. Um, it says, as a rule of thumb, vigorous training is defined as training in which a person is unable to talk. Um, you know... I, I think you got to be careful there because if you do a heavy single, <laughs> you can probably step away from that bar and I mean, yeah, you're panting, but you can talk, and yet yeah. that was incredibly intense as far as the um, you know immediate sympathetic drive that is necessary. But anyway, 
Uh, that goes let, back to the old talk test. Yes, for exactly. Looking at exercise intensity. Well, I think a lot of so often, and it could be the case with this journalist. Yeah, they just imagine right, like you're jogging alongside someone. Can you carry on a conversation? Right. You know, uh, like more like steady state stuff. Um, but it says, as the analysis showed, it took study participants who completed an intensive training session shortly before bed longer to fall asleep. So they had more sleep latency, it looks like. Their hearts were still beating 20 beats faster than rest, but than their resting heart rate. Uh, but again, that's intense and within one hour. Um, yeah. So, you know, meh. Probably not a huge issue. I mean, it takes me usually... And I, I would guess a lot of people, it might take you 20 minutes to drive home from the gym, you know, and then you have some kind of snack or something and and noodle down. But uh, I do admit, when I used to do martial arts training, the intense stuff, it, classes went from 7 to 9 p.m., and I hated that, you know, because you're, you're basically, you, you would end with sparring, which is very intense. Oh, sure. And, and, you know, you're walking out of the gym at about 9 p.m., and yeah, that's the kind of stuff probably would. I mean, you know, you're wound up. To me, though, that's just a matter of calming, cooling your jets after practice. You know, maybe something proactive, some meditation or purposely stretching and cooling down afterward. Get your heart rate back down more quickly. Because in very fit people, I think that would probably happen. Your heart rate would return to normal more quickly, you know. Yeah, I haven't pulled the full study on that yet, but I'd love to see the the variability on the individual data on that. And my guess is that for most people who don't exercise a lot and they're not going super intense, uh, it's probably going to be a benefit or at least not a detriment, and that would what the study would say. Um, but I've noticed some people who lift or do something very intense at night that it's really variable. Like for whatever goofy reason, I can do some pretty intense cardiovascular work. It'll take me maybe one to two hours to kind of relax from that, even just trying to relax on purpose. And that's not too bad because I usually play broomball and sometimes the games are, you know, nine o'clock at night during the winter. Yeah, yeah. But even if I've, and I've tried this like multiple times over the years, even if I just do a lighter strength session, man, I can't, like my sleep latency gets really hard to fall asleep. So that timing gets goofed up and... I've noticed, especially with the Aura Ring, my heart rate stays elevated for much longer. Hmm. It's not a massive difference, but, you know, sometimes, like, I don't hit that lowest heart rate point until, you know, four hours later than what I normally do. Right. So. Yeah. You know, I often use sleep latency, you know, whether with a Fitbit or, or however you want to measure yeah. that, as a marker of sort of a chronic state of overtraining but obviously this is going to throw a monkey wrench into that if you train hard right before you go to bed you know i i I think that's a no-brainer that it's gonna you're not just gonna immediately wink out (laughs) you know because you were just so intense just at least let your heart rate return to normal but yeah i would think there's a lot of variability there too so yeah another thing too with the sleep latency if people are looking at that if you have an athlete who or you can ask them this i'll do that too hey, do you fall asleep the second your head hits the pillow? And if they're like, yes, you're probably chronically sleep deprived (laughs) because it should take you a few minutes, 5, 10, 15, depending on who you read and who you believe, to actually fall asleep once you're in bed. If you're chronically in bed and 
you're asleep by the time your head even hits the pillow. You're probably severely sleep deprived. Right. I, it might be worth having an episode where we revisit the different kinds of exhaustion and overtraining. You know, sympathetic yeah. overtraining sympathetic is going to lead to para. yeah, exactly. Um, sympathetic stuff is going to have almost the opposite effect to that. But then, right. yeah, otherwise, if if you're asleep instantly, you may be exhausted in more of a parasympathetic way or a sleep debt kind of way. That makes a lot of sense to me. You know, and it it does make it confusing. You know, like oh, yeah. <laughs> so. Wait, if I if I fall asleep too fast or it takes too long, either way, I'm screwed. Well, I guess ideally, uh, it's not best. Yeah, but it's it's hard to interpret some of that stuff. So yeah, it's the same with sleep efficiency. I since we had a, I know you had a Zio device at one point to look at sleep too, and. Man, I spent a couple of years and I had the device trying to get my sleep efficiency to be, you know, close to 100%. My thought being, oh, I can condense all my sleep into a shorter period of time. This is going to be great. I'll get, you know, an extra one to two hours extra during the day and I'll get the same amount of sleep. And, right. Oh, not possible unless you're just chronically sleep deprived. Yeah. And then also just spending more time in bed and normal is probably 85, maybe 90%. You know, getting up to that 100% again, what you think is going to be better is actually worse. So it's kind of finding that that sweet spot of where it is. Yeah, you remind me of Arnold's quote in that his six rules for success where he talks yeah. about getting six hours sleep. And he says, now you might be saying, wait a minute, what about I need eight hours sleep? And he'd say, well, if you need eight, I suggest you sleep faster. Yeah. <laughs> and and that's kind of that's what you're really saying, right, with the efficiency. Oh, like yeah. you could sleep faster if you're fidgeting around less and you're awake less during that six hour block. Yeah, maybe you can sleep faster. I mean, it sounds funny, but this it may yeah. be actually true. You know, it's yeah, funny. I've, but then again, I've tried all sorts of stuff. I tried lucid dreaming for a while to see if I could deadlift in my dreams to try to increase my deadlift. Oh, it's yeah. A, the yeah. motor, you know, response, I could do it without having any muscle skeletal effects. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're always ex- explorational. Yeah. Uh, that's good. All right, everybody. Well, uh, cool. like we said, yeah, happy ha- holidays. I, we got yes, Christmas coming holidays. up here. Yep. And we'll uh, we'll just catch up uh, between Christmas and New Year's, I guess. Yeah, sounds good. See ya. Hey, listeners. Have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store, one for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry, and they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store, uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention, uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each Hall of Iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. 
This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.